Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, in a reopening economy, one of the businesses that are really looking to aggressively reopen is the physical fitness business, the gyms out there. Um, people get off their Pelotons and get back into the gyms. Um, that is certainly happening across the United States as more and more folks get uh, vaccinated. So perhaps it's a good time to consider investing in that business. Carl Dykeller, he's the co-founder, chairman, and chief executive officer of the Beachbody Company. Uh, he joins us here. And the Beachbody Company today, uh, they are going to start trading as a public company on the NYSE under the ticker sign BODY, B-O-D-Y, as it's expected to close. It's a street strategic transaction of the three-way merger among the Beachbody Company, Forest Road Acquisition Corp, i.e. a SPAC, and MyX Fitness. Uh, Carl, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about what I'm just going to call this new co, this new company of putting these three entities together. What do I have at the end of the day? Well, what's really exciting about it is everything that you just said um, is is what we're not seeing. Is what we're not seeing is people who discovered in-home fitness during the pandemic are actually loving the convenience of working out at home, and that's what's such a great business opportunity for us to take this company out to the public markets with this merger with Mix Fitness and their their commercial grade indoor bike. You know, Beachbody's been around for two decades. We have 3.2 million subscriptions, the largest uh, subscription business in the health and fitness space. But now we bring this indoor bike with this transaction, and we're going to serve literally tens of millions of more customers who are ready to get their workout done first thing in the morning and then get on with their day. So, Carl, let's talk about how you came to the public markets doing this through a three-way merger with a SPAC. Why that instead of a traditional IPO? Yeah, I totally get it. Well, obviously, the the ability to do this as a merger, so bringing mix in to the fold at the same time, at a point in time that we could really get to the market more quickly, was just really fortuitous, honestly. The IPO path is uh, it's a great path, but it does take quite a bit of time. Uh, it would have been appropriate for a company like Beachbody because we've been around and profitable for 20 years, but um, we had the opportunity because of the FRX spec, which brought Kevin Mayer, who is you know the Disney superstar who yep. really built Disney Plus and Hulu. He's joining our board because we did this deal with FRX. So it it really helps the company, which is a digital platform for content, see around corners that I don't think we would have seen around if we didn't have an expert like that on our board to help us take this to the next level. So, Carl, talk to us about, I mean, people, the way they have trained, as you pointed out, has really changed during this pandemic. And, you know, obviously Peloton is probably the, the story that investors know uh, most notably here and the growth numbers that they've been able to put up. Talk to us about how you think it's emerging on the other side of this because again we've seen gyms reopening uh a lot of folks are just you know they're tweeting out how they're getting back to the gym but give us sure. a sense of how you think this is going to develop over the next several years 
Well, honestly, you know, Beachbody, the, the very premise of this company has has come from my own problem. I, I do not like to work out. I do not like to eat healthy. <laughs> and uh, and it's ironic, but it's like we have been trying to solve my problem for two decades. And like if I have an extra half hour to get a workout done, I'm not going to spend that half hour driving to the gym. So there are gym goers, 62 million of them in North America, but there's another 150 million of us like me who are not members of gyms who are looking for really gratifying and effective content that we can just access on our iPad, on our phone, on our TV. And that's what Beachbody's been doing. We have two platforms. We have Beachbody On Demand and OpenFit. And then the, the most important thing that people are looking for, like me, are results. Right. So the, the, the thing that they know Beachbody for, like P90X or Insanity or 21 Day Fix, is the fact that we don't just give you a workout. We also give you the nutrition plan to do with it. So people get results with this thing. And look, they're always going to want to socialize in the gym. And I totally get that. Like the gym is a great <laughs> component of it, but there's nothing, nothing beats rolling out of bed. You don't have to put on fancy clothes. You take your pre-workout and you get your workout done in 20 to 30 minutes. And that's the way I like to roll. See, Carl, I don't like it when people socialize with me in the gym. I want nobody <laughs> to look at me. I'm just doing my thing. Leave me alone. Um, but you were talking about, yes, people have been looking for ways to work out at home and they have had ways to do that competition in theory to Beachbody, like Peloton. How do you position yourself against that kind of competitive landscape? First off, it's not a zero-sum game. The obesity problem is just enormous. And, you know, frankly, even in the pandemic, the people who were hit the hardest were the people who aren't making the kind of choices that help their body fight off whatever viruses or bacteria is in the world. So just, just being healthier is something that, that everybody in the world needs to be more proactive about. And that's just not common, right? Like that's not the common thing. So our job, frankly, you know, you mentioned Peloton. You know, I consider myself in partnership with them in helping people achieve their goals, lead healthy, fulfilling lives. You know, it's a, we have a long way to go before we're fighting over the last customer who's thinking about choose, making a fitness choice. But I will say, what Beachbody has specialized in for right. years is creating content that lets somebody do it on a budget. We're the mass market right. company, and that's what yeah. I'm proud of, and we're going to help a lot more people. All right, Carl, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. I know it's a big day for you guys uh, with this uh, listing here. Carl Dykeller, co-founder, chairman, and chief executive officer of The Beachbody Company. We appreciate that. This is Bloomberg. Well, the eviction moratorium, we got some news on that. It was set to expire June 30th. Uh, but was extended for another four weeks until the end of July. So that's good news. But there's still bankruptcy filings out there resulting from the economic disruptions of COVID, medical debt piling up uh, as well. So a lot of hurt out there. Let's talk to Jonathan Carson, CEO and founder of Stretto. Jonathan, thanks for joining us here. How important is extending uh, that eviction moratorium uh, out there for a lot of folks? Thanks for having me. The extension certainly will be helpful in terms of having more time for many people that are under this dynamic, but it really doesn't do much more than kick the can further down the road. Millions of Americans will be in limbo now at the end of July as opposed to the end of June, unless there is a clear unwind process in place, something we're hoping to see over the course of the coming weeks. 
When we think about the eviction moratorium, at least for me, I think a lot about the tenants, the people who would in theory be losing their homes if this weren't in place. But there is also the other side of the equation, and that's the landlords. And in many cases, these aren't, you know, big mega landlords. They're just people who have income properties. What about that side of the equation? How are those people doing? It's a great question. The landlords as well as the tenants both find themselves in a situation of uncertainty right now, and some guidance would be helpful on both sides. Exactly as you mentioned, tenants have some uncertainty regarding what might happen when this moratorium comes to an end. Not only is the uncertainty regarding whether they can make the upcoming rent payment, but of far more significance is what about the last 10, 11, 12, whatever number of months of forgiveness this tenant has had what happens to that back rent? And that back rent clearly is of primary focus to the landlords. Mm. We just don't quite know how it will be managed yet. And hopefully we'll see some clear direction come out and some clear rules from the administration as we approach the end of the moratorium now set for the end of July. So as it relates to this eviction moratorium, Jonathan, do we have a sense of how many people we're talking about? How big of a problem is this? How widespread is it? Sure, it's a great question. There's of one recent data point I saw was more than 6 million renters are, are behind on rent payments. Of course, it is, doesn't apply to all renters in the country. It applies to renters that were able to find their way into this program. As long as they do so, um, they, they have this forbearance or this, this forgiveness that the others have as well. So certainly lots of people out there. It's a large subset for sure. Let's talk about bankruptcies, because we, when we talk about the pandemic, we often talk about the extraordinary fiscal and monetary policies that have come along with it to combat the crisis. And on the monetary side, you have really cheap borrowing costs. Companies can get their hands on money. Therefore, they don't necessarily have to file for bankruptcy. And on the fiscal side, Americans had more cash in their pockets that they wouldn't necessarily have had. Has that overall led to fewer bankruptcies than you would have expected in a crisis like this? It certainly has led to fewer bankruptcies, and you're exactly on the right path in terms of the, the thought process. Bankruptcy filings have plummeted during the pandemic, thanks in large part to the efforts of federal and state governments for putting in place programs like this eviction moratorium or like deferral programs for student loans or for mortgages. And as a result, as plus relief checks, as a result of these benefits, we've seen Personal bankruptcies decreased quite a bit, 25%-ish from the second half of 2019 and the second half of 2020 when you compare them. Uh, what that means, though, is we could very well see a wave of filings that come when we see some of these pandemic moratoriums dissipate. And that's why many of us involved in the system are hoping we see some clear rules come out for how the end of that will, will be about so we can manage and prepare accordingly. Is there So what do you expect? to get from the Biden administration in terms of maybe a longer term policy here? Will there be forgiveness of these issues or or will people at some point have to come to reckon with it? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think we'll probably see different results in different in each of these separate issues. Right. We are talking about, on the one hand, the eviction moratorium. I mentioned earlier student loans and mortgages. Those are different programs on the eviction side. Now that we have one more month to wait before it comes to an end. I think what we're hoping to see is some direction, not only on here is the firm end date, but also what are the rules regarding back pay? How are we going to treat that? We need to give the landlords and the tenants some clarity so we don't see a rush to the bankruptcy court and lots of people who all of a sudden have to come up with back pay large numbers have to file bankruptcy because they don't have a plan around that. That's what we're hoping to see. 
All right, Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. Lots of issues out there to think about as this economy reopens uh, and some of these uh, federal uh, programs start to sunset. Jonathan Carson, CEO and founder of Stretto, talking to us about, uh, again, the eviction moratorium. The news there is it was set to expire June 3rd. It's in just a couple of days, but it has been extended uh, for another four weeks until the end of July. That's good news. Uh, for everyone involved, but as uh, Jonathan Carson kind of termed it, it's just kind of kicking the can down the road. The the issues, the underlying economic issues uh, remain both for the tenant uh, and for the apartment uh, owner as well. So we'll have to see how that plays out over the next coming weeks. Well, one of the more widely read stories on the Bloomberg today is one entitled UBS will allow two thirds of employees to adopt hybrid work and that kind of brings to the fore the discussion i think many corporations are having about how do we get people back to work who should come back to work should we do you know a hybrid approach uh so a lot of decisions being made in the boardrooms across corporate america gil borak president and chief executive officer of colliers us joins us to talk real estate gil thanks for much for taking the time here i'd love to get your outlook on office space and and the vacancies and and kind of where we are now and how you think it's going to evolve yeah hi good morning paul um i would say that you know we've been on a roller coaster over the last year in terms of sentiment and in terms of various ideas that folks have had people a lot smarter than me uh, that know real estate very deeply uh, owners uh, large users and people that that really um, are in it every day. And I think where we've landed, uh, it, where we've come from is everybody's going to work remotely to what I thought would happen, which is sort of a reversion to the mean. There are things that you miss when you're not in the office, like collaboration and hu- human interaction and spur of the moment conversations and decisions, creativity and so forth, that are proving to be very strong factors as a drawback to the office. And balancing that with what we've learned during the pandemic, which is that people want more flexibility and hence the sort of uh, compromise position seems to be some type of hybrid is what most companies are adopting, a, a, a mix of working remotely and working in the office. So what does that mean if companies are having more people work from home some of the time? Some are saying we're not going to need as large of a footprint going forward. What are the implications for commercial real estate? Yeah, I think that's easier said than done. Look, there may be a slight diminution in the need for space, but uh, in my mind, um, it's very hard. If you're going to let people work from home, let's say, two days a week, I know we haven't quite figured this out for ourselves. Uh, To reduce space, you have to know which days people aren't going to be coming in. Uh, Otherwise, you've got to be able to accommodate them in some fashion. And if you tell people which days they shouldn't come in, then you're sort of defeating the purpose of giving them flexibility. So I think it's not going to be a big decrease in office space. Uh, there was certainly a large amount of sublease space that came on during the pandemic that's slowly receding, and it may take a little while to work through that uh, inventory. But I think when all is said and done, we're not going to see a significant uh, reduction in the need for office space. Well, how about, uh, I guess, distributing geographically your workforce as opposed to perhaps concentrating them in, you know, big cities like a New York or, or a San Francisco or Chicago? Um, we did see, you know, as this pandemic uh, rolled on, a lot of companies said, oh, we're going to relocate some or all of our people to Florida, for example, lower taxed regions. Is that something that will remain a permanent part of kind of the workforce? 
Uh, it certainly seems that way, and, and and that's factually correct. Whether it, you know, in particular, if you use New York as an example, you saw migration of some large financial institutions migrating some of their workers uh, to Connecticut. Uh, you certainly saw a move down to Florida. Those are real. Leases have been signed, and so I think there definitely was during the pandemic sort of a shift to this what they call a hub and spoke model which I think then means, you know, to some degree it means a reduction in use of space in New York City in the example I'm using and an increase in space in other areas. And I definitely think that that we are seeing some of that. When we talk about the return to the office and commercial real estate, we largely do so through the lens of office buildings. But there's also everything that exists around those office buildings, the restaurants, the coffee shops, retail. And here in New York, anecdotally, there's a lot of people returning back to the offices, but there's vacant spaces underneath. That's true right here at Bloomberg headquarters. What about that side of commercial real estate? Yeah, so now we sort of move into, and I understand what you're saying, we sort of move into more of the retail category, which, you know, along with hospitality, was probably hardest hit in the pandemic because people stopped shopping, they had to stay home, they weren't traveling and so forth. And you're right, in a city like New York, when the office workers stopped coming in, there's no need for those restaurants or less need for those restaurants, and they can't pay their rent and they can't afford to stay open, and so they close. I do think that, and some of that will be permanent. Uh, the degree to which it's permanent, you know, is, is sort of a, a, a guess at this point. But I think some of those will come back, whether they come back or whether new stores or restaurants take over the space that has been shuttered. I do think some of that will come back. And we are seeing some of that. We are seeing an improvement in retail. It is slow and there's a long way to go. But uh, it'll reverse, I believe, as the fate of office reverses as well. Just real quickly here, Gil, aside from the Floridas of the world, where are the strong markets? Um, the secondary markets. So when you think of, of markets that are not, you know, and that's been the case the last 12 months, when you think of markets not San Francisco, not Chicago, not New York, anything secondary with lower rise buildings and more space, uh, those are all hot markets and have been in the demand for for space uh, on the capital market side, on the on the on the sales side, even has been quite strong in those secondary markets. All right, Gil, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Fascinating discussion here. Gil Borak, President and Chief Executive Officer of Collier's U.S. And hey, Kaylee, you brought it up here on 58th Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, Lexington Avenue between 58 and 59. Yeah. Other than the chocolate shop, they're all <laughs> empty. No more Starbucks. And I was just broken the news by our very own John Tucker that Home Depot is leaving. Our building, yeah. So they had a big piece of uh, commercial real estate on the ground level, which is common in in Manhattan. And uh, uh, so a lot of those folks uh, left during the pandemic. Question is, will they come back? We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. Looking at Bitcoin today, the volatility continues. It's up about 6.7%. Uh, it's about, let's call it 34,800. It had a, another wild weekend, too. I think on the weekends it trades a little bit more. Uh, <laughs> it never a, closes. A lot more. It never closes. <laughs> and you come back in on Monday and you're like, wait a minute, where was it on Friday? And then, you know, you have to remember, oh, yeah, it does trade on the weekends. All right. Let's dive into crypto, Bitcoin, all that good stuff. We do that with Meltem Demirs. We really appreciate her giving us her time. She's Chief Strategy Officer for CoinShares Group. They have about $3.9 billion in assets under management here. So, Melton, thanks so much for joining us. I know we're supposed to get used to this volatility, um, <laughs> but can we, should we get used to this volatility? Look, uh, it's great to, great to be back, and it, it's no 
secret that it has been a volatile time in Bitcoin. We started the year at around 33,000, ran all the way up to 65,000. Now we're trading at around 34, 35,000. Volatility here is part of the price of opportunity in the digital asset space, and in particular with Bitcoin. Um, there are smaller, shorter-term cycles, but the broader secular trend that we're focused on is really a five to ten-year investment time horizon. And within that short-term volatility, if you zoom out, the context here is the trend has really been a much longer-term secular trend that's up and into the right. So volatility is just part of the ride. And I wonder how regulation plays into that as well, Melton, because for a while there was this narrative that more regulation was a good thing. The market needed that mm -hmm. to kind of organize itself. It showed that, you know, that you could have institutional adoption and it was mature. Then regulation became really scary. And then we saw what happened over the weekend with the UK banning Binance markets and the market totally taking that in stride. So is regulation now a good thing again? I don't think it's ever been regulation, good or bad. I think a lot of it's really around sentiment and how sentiment translates into demand. On the sentiment side, we've had really mixed sentiment over the last two months. Obviously, we've had a number of uh, more negative sentiments, especially around China. Uh, so China has uh, cracked down on mine, Bitcoin mining activity in the country. There's also been a reduced uh, ability for commercial banks to interact with crypto platforms and reduced leverage available on some of the popular retail trading platforms in China. On top of that, over the weekend, on Friday, Japan issued a warning around Binance's operations in Japan. The FCA issued a warning around Binance Markets Limited. But interestingly, that entity does not engage with um, retail buyers buying and selling Bitcoin. That's actually not regulated by the FCA. But at the same time, we have folks like Stanley Druckenmiller, Scott Minard at Guggenheim and others coming out in support of Bitcoin and articulating a long-term investment thesis. So sentiment's really been mixed, but we need to look at demand. So if we look at demand, we've seen our fourth consecutive week of outflows in digital asset investment products. And this outflow has been underway since mid-May. We've seen about 1% of global assets under management, or around $300 million, flowing out of crypto ETPs. So we're waiting to see turnaround and to see a week of net inflows, which I think will be a signal that demand is back. So, Meltem, in terms of the use cases and the validation of Bitcoin in particular, but crypto in general, yeah, I guess we've seen a, some corporate validation where you had uh, Tesla uh, buy the company, actually buy and put on their balance sheet some Bitcoin, and then it can be used. I guess now it was on, then off, then now it's on again. You can actually you know, <laughs> use it as a currency to buy it, you know, a Tesla vehicle. What's the next step along the validation path, uh, do you think, for crypto? We have the biggest validation, which happened two weeks ago. El Salvador, um, as a country, yep. has chosen to adopt Bitcoin as its legal tender. Paraguay is now contemplating that. Zimbabwe and a number of other countries are now also looking at that. Again, what Bitcoin represents, yes, it's an asset, but more than anything, Bitcoin is a monetary movement. Um, and there are so, now a number of countries around the world who are looking at the dollar and saying, hmm, Bitcoin looks good as an alternative. So Meltem, sorry, just to jump in here, then you think the use case for crypto is to replace fiat currencies to be used as currency, not just you know a store of value or an inflation hedge? I think the word replace is probably a strong word choice. I would say it's more about being a complement to fiat currencies. 
for the last 3,000 millennia, humans have not had um, the separation of state and money. Bitcoin is an experiment in the separation of state and money. And as we live our lives increasingly online and in the digital domain where physical jurisdiction is less and less relevant, Bitcoin represents a new type of monetary reality. And I think that's extremely attractive to a number of different audiences starting with people in tech and people interested in the growth of the digital finance sector, but also people in parts of the world who have historically been excluded from the financial system or have faced persistent inflation or monetary debasement. Do you think that in the near to intermediate term over the number of years, we'll see a kind of a G7 or even a, you know like a G20 type um, government embrace Bitcoin? That is certainly my aspiration, and at CoinShares, we're working very hard to make that happen. But I think, again, um, it's a complement to the existing fiat ecosystem, and I do think the growth of central bank digital currencies or putting fiat on blockchain rails is a trend that's not going anywhere. And over time, again, I think, you know, as you alluded to at the start of the segment, markets in the crypto space are open 24-7, 365, and they're global in nature. There's no reason, in our view, that markets around the world of, of all types can't operate in that manner, that global commerce should be bound by 9.30 to 4 p.m. Eastern time. And so I think, again, we're entering into a new world. Everyone's increasingly online, transactions, um, exchange, mm -hmm. everything is happening online. So we need money for the internet, and that is Bitcoin, effectively. Meltem, just quickly, because you were talking about the outflows and some of the ETPs out there, when do you mm -hmm. think the U.S. will actually approve a Bitcoin ETF? That's such a great question, Kaylee. Um, that is the question on everyone's mind. The Valkyrie ETF decision, which was the first in the docket of the 13 open ETF filings that are pending with the SEC, was just postponed again to October. Given the tone coming from Gary Gensler in the SEC, I am, uh, I am not very optimistic on the prospects of an ETF being approved. And again, I think some of the volatility over the last few months certainly hasn't bolstered confidence when it comes to U.S. regulators and, and their right. temperament towards the U.S. ETF. But let's not forget, we have MicroStrategy, which has effectively yep. become a de facto Bitcoin ETF. Hey, Meltem, thank you so much for joining us uh, once again. We always love getting your perspective on Bitcoin and all things crypto. Meltem uh, Demir's Chief Strategy Officer. Uh, strategy officer for CoinShares Group. They have about $3.9 billion in assets under management. And again, uh, continue to see volatility in the Bitcoin space. It is up today uh, about 6.5%. It did test that 30,000 level again and bounce back. So uh, very interesting to see. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.